0: Hi, and thank you for listening to this message from Shepherd's Gate Church, located in Shelby Township, Michigan. To learn more about Shepherd's Gate and to access more content, visit SGatechurch.org. Good morning. Hi, someone beat me to it. <laughs> well, good morning. I'm I'm glad that you are joining us this morning. Whether you're here in person or if you're joining us online, welcome. We're glad that you've gathered with us to worship God and to hear from His Word this morning. Right now, we find ourselves in the third week of a series called Summer Psalms. We heard about a couple weeks ago for one of our outdoor services from from Pastor Tim about being planted near water, being planted in God's Word. We also worshiped last week and realized that it's good to be thankful. And today, we're going to be digging into a particular psalm. Uh, And if you haven't done so, there's also been the invitation over the course of the last few weeks to be in the Psalms, to be reading the Psalms. And maybe you've missed a couple of weeks, but it's not too late. There's plenty of Psalms to still read. And so uh, this is the challenge to set before you this week, to open God's Word. And it's almost right there, smack dab in the middle. It's easy to find. There's 150 of them. And to set aside a little bit of time each day, and if you could, this week to actually read Psalm 101 through Psalm 150. Because we know this to be true of God's word, that it's powerful, it's effective, and it doesn't return void. The time that you spend in God's word is going to refresh you, just like we talked about during the first week, to be planted near God's word, that it might strengthen you and restore you. And so we hope that you lean into that, if it's the Psalms or anywhere else in scripture, to take up that challenge and to spend some time with him that week. Does that sound good? Okay, wow. Okay, so three of you think it's a good idea. Does that sound good? Okay, try. Give it to Monday. Let's, you know, give it one day at the very least. Give it a shot. This week, we're going to be looking at a concept, an idea of feeling a fruit, actually, of the Spirit. That comes out of one of the Psalms in particular. But before we get there, we're going to look at this verse. Out of Philippians 4, verse 4. Why don't you read this with me? What does it say? It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice always. To have joy always, at all times, in all circumstances. You can say it like that. Or you could say it like some of you are actually thinking. Really? <laughs> always? O- always. You want me to be joyful always? At all times? Now, is it is it possible to be joyful always? Is Is joy actually based off of our circumstances? Can can we be can we be joyful at all times? Does it does it have to deal with our circumstances at all in our life? The joy that we find in our lives. Well, we're going to look at a psalm. Let's let's see what this psalm has to say about it. It's a psalm from David, who's a king in the Old Testament, king of God's people, and he's writing a psalm, and he's being reminded of God's faithfulness. And here in Psalm 30, where we're going to be hanging out for the day, it says this: "I will extol you, O Lord." For you have drawn me up, and you have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I have cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought me up, brought up my soul from Sheol, that is, from death, and you have restored me to life, uh, life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Here David's recounting God's faithfulness time and time again in his life that he sees that God is stopping his foes, that there was some ailment that he needed to be healed from that we don't know exactly what it is. And he's even saying that there was a point where he felt so low that it was even the point of death. And at the first blush, at the first glance at that, you might look at it and go, well, it is based off of circumstances. He's saying, sing praises the Lord. And he has just listed all these things that God has done for him and how God had been faithful to him. So, of course, David has a reason to be joyful, to be thankful, to praise God. So, it's easy for him to rejoice always because God is always there for him. Yet, if you go on one more verse, it says, For his anger is for but a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. That weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. You see, we know this to be true of David's life, and I suppose it's true of yours, is that circumstances don't always go our way. David, being the youngest of a big family, was a lowly shepherd boy. And that when someone came to to this family, to David's family, to find out who might be the next king, he was forgotten. He was left out in the fields. After being a lowly shepherd boy and being anointed king, he was chased down by King Saul, who was trying to murder him. Later, as a king, he lost a child And then late in his life, he was betrayed by his own sons who wanted to steal the throne from him. David knows a thing or two about sorrow and circumstance. David knows a thing or two about mourning and difficulty. And we realize that that's true in our own lives as well. That if we're seeking to have joy, joy perpetually, joy continually, joy everlasting, rejoicing in the Lord always, That we can't look to our external circumstances to inform the condition of our heart. Because there's things that come for each of us that steal our joy. That our external circumstances press in on us and seek to actually lead us to despair and to sorrow. And I know at a congregation this size and those online that there are those that are listening this morning that are in that moment, that are in that place right now. Of despair and sorrow, and to hear a message about joy is like, are, are you serious? And for those of you that might not be in that situation currently, what has stolen your joy? What in the past has come your way? What external circumstance has pressed in on you in the past where you have tried to live out joy and glee and happiness towards God, yet you found it almost impossible? I know in my life from times of sickness and times of loss and times of difficulty and times of ministry and times of discouragement that joy can be stolen from you in a moment if you allow it. If you fix your eyes on the situation above all else. A number of years ago, I was serving at a church down in Texas at the privilege of coordinating a mission trip for Hurricane Harvey relief we'd gathered over 200 students from around the nation to come to our church to help serve those who were in need. It took months and months of planning and coordinating. And the very first night of this mission trip we were hosting at our church, we're gathered there with 200 students. We're worshiping God. We're preparing to go out that week and to serve. And I gave an opening talk that night. And I'll never forget finishing the talk and being overjoyed, being so thankful, being so honored to be used by God in such a powerful way to impact not only the lives of those students, but to to impact the lives of those in our community who are in need. And it wasn't but three steps off of the stage that my phone rang after delivering that opening talk. It was a call to let me know that one of our students who was supposed to be in attendance there was at the local hospital bedside with her father who had just passed away. The moment where I was overjoyed with what God was doing in and through me and through all these students was then pulled out from underneath me because I had to go into another whole setting, another whole situation to try to offer hope. To try to offer comfort. Maybe that's you. Maybe there are things that you can see. Maybe there are circumstances and situations in your life that you know are good. But there's still something looming. There's still something that's hanging over you. That whatever it is. If it's bills that are piling up on the counter. If it's a car that's breaking down. If it's a difficult situation in relationships. If it's a difficult situation at work. That all the other things that build up. All the other things that look good. All the other things that would cause you to have joy are overshadowed by some other external circumstance. Something else that just, for whatever reason, that we fix our eyes to this negative thing. And in doing so, the joy that we're designed to experience is stolen from us. And rather than experiencing the joy of the Lord, we experience despair, sorrow, agony, fear, anxiety, depression it can't be the case that external circumstances dictate the joy that we have in our life even jesus told us that this was not going to be the case in john chapter 16 verse 33 it says this jesus speaking to his disciples he says i have told you these things so that in me you may have peace in the world you have trouble After his death before his ascension, his death and resurrection before his ascension, he's telling his disciples that as I leave, know this full well, you will have trouble. There will be tough things in your life. There will be trials. There will be temptations. There will be things that come to steal your joy. Yet it also says here that you might find peace in him. That there are things that are going to steal our joy. Well, then if that's not the case, if we know this, and even Jesus here, here he puts a last nail in the coffin. It's not about circumstances. It's not about situations. He says it. He says there's going to be trouble in the world. If that's the case, it's not about circumstances, yet we have to hold intention that we're supposed to rejoice always. How are we able to rejoice always? Then is it dependent on our mindset? Is it dependent upon our willpower? Is it dependent upon how we look at things and how we view things? Does that look something along these lines? Today I choose joy. I like the little Easter eggs they added here too. That's Vicar Ben. That's not a real account if you wanted to follow or anything. Who has seen something like this before? Today I choose joy. Choose joy today. Okay, so this last week, Staff went boxing to a local little boxing thing together. There we put gloves on. Right now I'm going to take the gloves off. You can't choose joy. You cannot, as a believer, choose joy. Now, there is something to be said about being positive and being grateful and being thankful to things that are in your life, but your own willpower is a well that will quickly run dry. And it wouldn't take me very long whatsoever to follow any one of you around for a week or even a day to see how weak your willpower is because I know how weak my willpower is. And that if I'm telling you to simply choose joy despite the circumstance, no matter what, it sounds cheesy, it sounds fake, and it is fleeting because there are certain situations and circumstances in this world that are far deeper and greater than this trite little saying to simply choose joy. I think in a moment, it might be appropriate to say to someone, look on the bright side, but there are other situations that I've walked into now, having served as a pastor and training, as a vicar, and even as a student minister, being bedside with people, being bedside with that young lady who just lost her father, being bedside with some of our members as their loved one lay next to them, breathing some of their last breaths before they pass hours away. And for me to come with his Instagram theology to tell them, choose joy. Choose joy. It's okay. Choose joy. Look on the bright side. To go to the wake of a member of this congregation and tell them, rather than I'm sorry, rather than my condolences, rather than I'm praying for you, to simply just choose joy it rings hollow, doesn't it? To be graveside with someone who lost a child and the casket's roughly the size of a shoebox, it would be despicable to turn to that mother and to say, choose joy. There are situations in this world that are far deeper Than this simple saying to simply choose joy, it's bigger than our mindset because our mindset and our willpower are weak and fleeting and it puts the responsibility on the individual to say, you must choose joy. You're the one responsible for your own joy. You're the one responsible. When we know this full well, when things are in our own hands, they are fleeting, they are fickle, and they will not eventually work out. There is no confidence I can place in my own mindset. And we know this well too, that there are situations where this is inappropriate, it's not right, it's not fitting. And if it's not fitting in those situations, then why do we apply it to others? Joy isn't found in positive thinking. Joy goes far deeper than that. In the book of James, we hear this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Some may look to that and say, well, then doesn't, doesn't that support the idea that you're, you're trying to break down? Well, the context matters. Here it's saying, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials for your faith. All sorts of trials of various kinds, not just this brokenness and this sin out there in the world. And the author here is not telling you to just have a positive mindset, but that there is evil, that there are problems, that there are things that are bad. And it's inappropriate as a Christian, as a believer who is truthful, to look at the bad things of the world and to call them good. Because they're not good. There are things in this world that are bad, that are wicked, that are evil, and that are the result of sin. Sin outside of us or sin within us. And the good and the right thing to do there is to be truthful and to say, this is bad. I don't understand it, but there can be joy found in the midst of these things. And we want to take a look at how those things can be found. But to find that, we have to actually look back at our psalm and to see the situation that David finds himself in. Because most of the psalms are, all the psalms are written in the context of someone's life. Who are actually worshiping God, praising God, praying to God in a real situation, in real time. And so if we go back to our psalm, we know it's King David. And what does he say next? It actually gives us the context of which he's writing this psalm. In verse 6, it says this, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. But what wasn't mentioned earlier is that this psalm is also titled, if you go in your Bibles and look at it, David at the Dedication of the Temple. And anyone that's a biblical scholar among you, David never saw the temple. So then what does it have to deal with? Why is this psalm written? Well, it actually tells us the story of how David came to find the place that the temple would be built by his son later. And that here in verse six, as David is saying, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. He is speaking of the sin in his life. Not the sin of adultery that we, some of us know about that happens early in his life or murder or lying, but sin that came later in his life. A sin of pride where he thought of himself much more higher than he should have. And God saw the pride of his heart. And if you want to, you can dig into it. You can find it in 2 Samuel 24 and in 1 Chronicles 21. But for the sake of time let me just tell you this the pride of his heart even he, he didn't even listen to the wise counsel about him but the around him but the pride of his heart allowed him to think of himself more highly than he ought and 70,000 of his people lost their lives because of his pride that as the king responsible for God's people the Israelites in the old testament that 70,000 Lost their lives. So when he's saying, you hid your face from me, I was dismayed. He is standing there with 70,000 tombstones in front of him that he knows that he is solely responsible for the loss of life that stands before him. Because of the wickedness that existed in his own heart. Which is to another point, just to knock down this idea of mindset. Because not only are we weak, but we're also sinful. Sinful. This is where David is writing this psalm from. David is standing there where the temple would one day later be built, but he's also standing there in the midst of his sin, where he's experiencing sorrow. Where he's recounting not only God's faithfulness, but he's also recounting his weakness and his sin before an almighty and powerful God. It's in that place of sin that I believe it's, It's actually most difficult to rejoice in the Lord always. I believe that you can in certain situations, in certain circumstances, you can find joy. But in the midst of sin and shame, I don't believe there's joy to be found. I've done ministry now 11 years. The majority of that has been in student ministry. And one of the first things that I did as a student minister was take confirmation retreats with my first church. It was a large church. We had a lot of students and we'd go on these retreats and we'd try to create experiences that would be memorable for our students, that they could experience the love of God. And at one of these very first retreats, we came up with a creative idea We wanted these kids to have an experience, something tactile, something tangible, so that they could walk away, and while they might not remember everything that we said, that they would remember the grace of God. And so, upon finishing the talk of the second night of a two-night camp, we invited all of our small groups to gather around, and we had paper lanterns. And on these paper lanterns, we had one for each individual student. We had them write down, their sins or the difficult situations in their life. And we wanted them to hand it off to God. We wanted them to repent of these things and to light the paper lanterns and let them float into the air. And between students and adult leaders, we had roughly 100 people there. Everyone lighting their lanterns, everyone praying for each other, everyone writing down and releasing things back to God and saying, God, we know you, we trust you, we know that you will cast this as far as the east is from the west. It was a powerful moment, it was a powerful night for those students. And then the next morning, we're at breakfast, and a group of these junior high guys come up, to me and they ask if they can run down to one of the sports fields to to play some games. I said, sure, just make sure you have an adult leader with you. They they went and left. They ate their breakfast quickly. They went down because it was the morning we're leaving. They wanted to play a couple more games quickly. And as they're approaching the sports field, they see a lantern falling from the sky. The lanterns that we lit and set into the air 12 hours earlier. And as they approach it, as it hits the ground and lands in front of them, one of the young men recognizes his own handwriting on it. And I'll never forget what he said next. I knew this would happen. I knew this would happen. I knew, I knew, I I knew that when you said that it would go as far as the east is from the west, that not this, Ben, not this sin. You don't understand how deep and disgusting this is. You don't understand the wickedness of my heart that yes, God can forgive these other people around me or can forgive 99% of what I've done. But this here, this that I tried to release, the thing that I've prayed to release, the thing that I want to be forgiven of, I'm still held captive to for some reason. I knew that this would happen. I knew that I couldn't escape this. And in that moment, there we, with a adult leader and the other young men, we went and we burned this lantern and we prayed over this young man. But my question for you this morning is, is that you? Do you come to church each and every week? Do you come forward to the Lord's table when we have communion When we repent and you hear that absolution, that your sins are indeed forgiven, is there still a piece of you that echoes what this young man's sentiment was? That I knew this would happen. I know there's still something that's unforgiven. Not that God. I believe that I can be right with you in these ways, but I still have to punish myself in other ways. I still have to work on this over here and I can't be forgiven of it until I get it right, until I do something a little bit more. I know that you can't fully forgive me of everything because how could that be? I must play some sort of role. I have to do something to make this right. And in doing so, we tarnish our relationship with God. We don't fully lean into it. I would say that you're waist deep in your baptism, that you're forgiven some, but you haven't gone all the way. Yet God, through the waters of baptism, God, through his word, God, through forgiveness, forgives you of all your sins. And they are cast as far as the east is from the west. But we, for whatever reason, believe that it can't be so. That that's too good to be true. And in doing so, we are still shackled to the same shame, the same guilt by our own sin. And living in the shame and the guilt of sins, sins committed, sins still committed, sins preconceived. We find that we cannot live in joy. We cannot rejoice always. For David, this meant that he had to do something. He recognizes sin. But rather than trying to fix himself up, rather than trying to make it right with God, rather than trying to go and offer his condolences to the 70,000 widows that were left because of his pride, he goes before the God that he committed this sin against, and he says this, to you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord, I pleaded for mercy What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord, my helper. He calls out to God. He repents. He asks for mercy of a God who has been terribly merciful and gracious with David his entire life. That as he recounts earlier in all the verses of the psalm up to this point, God's faithfulness, that here in this moment of his deep, dark sin, that he is standing before the consequence of that sin for, that he offers up a word of repentance, not a word of trying to make it right, not a word to defend himself, but in a posture of humility, come before God and ask for his mercy. Because it's only in that place of repentance Could his sorrow be met with joy? That in that place of sorrow, in that place of despair, in that place of agony, that repentance would be the thing that led to his joy. It's not only David that knows the depths of sorrow, but we have the benefit of having a God, a God in flesh who knows what sorrow and agony and despair feel like as well. In the book of Matthew, as Jesus is in the garden the night he's betrayed, it says this as he's speaking to his disciples. He says to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And he says, remain here and watch with me as he's talking to his disciples. As he's going to go and pray to his father, when he's filled with so much agony and despair, that sweat drops from his brow like drops of blood. As he's asking for this cup to be passed from him, that he is so sorrowful, so filled with agony, that he feels like he's going to die because he knows what he's going to face. Yet again, earlier we started off with this idea, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice. But Jesus himself in the flesh is filled with sorrow. So how can that possibly be? How can God in flesh for us who's this example, this exemplar of what a perfect person would live like, a perfect, perfect person who did live, And yet he's filled with sorrow. What's not mentioned here, but it's mentioned in the book of Hebrews, is that this this sorrow that Jesus is experiencing in this moment is also intermingled with joy. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says this. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, the one who began our faith. Jesus, the one who completes our faith. Jesus, who was in the garden, filled with sorrow, dripping drops of sweat like blood knowing full well that he was going to be he had been betrayed that he was going to be deserted that he was going to be denied that he was going to be scourged that he was going to be nailed to a tree that he knew all those things full well all the suffering and sorrow that he was about to experience he also with his eyes filled with tears was able to look up and to see the joy that was set before him and that joy was you you were that joy As he was at the lowest point that any of us could possibly imagine, the joy that was set before our Savior was you. Just as it says in Luke 15, that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one repentant sinner than 99 who need no repentance. That as we are looking for joy in our own lives, that the first place that we look is to where does God find his joy? And God finds his joy in you, in you as his beloved children, in you as repentant sinners who are drawn back to the Father, and that as he finds joy in us, that we find joy in him. And it's not just joy that changes all of our circumstance, but much like Jesus that we know we know there's trouble. We know that circumstances are perfect. We know that our mindsets can be weak at times. But we also know this full well, that more solid, more steady, more sure than all of those things is a God who died for you. That all the sins, even the ones that you knew he couldn't forgive, those were all nailed to the tree with Jesus. And because of that, now you have confidence that not only are those sins as far as the east is from the west, But more than that, that you are actually called his dear, loved children. And beyond that, that God actually comes and intervenes in our lives and he gives us hope. Hope that our lives are not the end. This is not the answer and that we don't need to look for perfection and happiness on this side of eternity. And yes, there are things that we enjoy in this world. There are moments and glimpses of joy, but that true joy... True joy is actually on the other side. And to cling to that hope in faith is where we find our joy. At the end of the psalm that David pens, it says this, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth. You've loosed my mourning and you've clothed me with gladness. Look at those words in the first line. You have turned for me for me, for you. That Christ, for you, endured all these things. That you were the joy, for you, that he saw all these things. And now that you know this, now that you realize this, now that you hear this again, that we look to him for our confidence, we look to him for our joy, despite whatever circumstance may be, and that it is right in this world when there are bad things that happen to us, or are said of us, or bad things that we do and think that feel like they separate us from the love of God, that we know that nothing can separate us from that love, and that we fix our eyes to him. And in First Peter chapter 1, we hear these words, speaking of Jesus, though you do not see him, or though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That as believers, we are called on this side of eternity to have this inexpressible, glorious joy that we have that is so much more deep-seated than fleeting happiness that goes with how our day goes and our circumstances and our situations. But this is also speaking of the confidence that we not only have in Jesus, but what he's won for us. It's not only about forgiveness of sins, but it's also about this, that you have an inheritance. That the same God who was nailed to a tree for each and every one of us who did that for you also is now preparing a place for you. So no matter what you face, no matter the situation, that there's something greater coming. That there is an inheritance in heaven so that it is not even worth comparing the circumstances. It's not even worth comparing the trials. It's not even worth comparing the tribulation that we have here and now because if we fix our eyes not only to the author and the perfecter of our faith, but if we also fix our eyes to the inheritance that has been won for us in heaven, undefiled, that your name is written there in heaven, then you are filled with a resilient, persistent, inexpressible joy that can push you through any of these dark moments because many of you have been there. When you are in those situations, when you are bedside with a loved one who's a believer and you feel the sorrow and you feel the loss and you mourn, but you also know it, if you've experienced this, that simultaneously in that moment of deep grieving and sorrow that it's intermingled with joy. Because you know for your loved one that the pain, the suffering, the heartache, all that they had experienced in this world has been wiped away. Revelation 21, it says that every tear will be wiped away. That they now can experience the fullness of God's joy, no longer intermingled with sorrow, but the fullness of that inexpressible joy as they realize that they are in the midst of their Savior, that they are face-to-face with the one who has redeemed them. So my hope for, for us this morning, is those of the, you are in the midst of sorrow. Hear this, I'm sorry. The sorrow you face is real on this side of eternity. But my prayer for you is that as you fix your eyes to Christ, and what he's won for you, that that sorrow would be intermingled with joy that's unexplainable, but it's also inexpressible. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we know from your very own words that this world is filled with trouble. God, we also know from your word and from David's words that we ourselves are filled with trouble and with sin. God, forgive us of our trespasses, forgive us of our sins, forgive us of the things that are contrary to your will that we let reside in our lives, that separate us from the joy that we might be able to experience in you. And Father, we also pray for all those that are facing situations that seek to steal the joy that you desire them to have. God, that they would be comforted, that the promises that you give them are true, that you are with them, that you never forsake them, that you have sent a comforter for them and that in the midst of their sorrow, that while that sorrow is real, that your joy is even more real. That it is cemented, it is in concrete, that it is in stone in heaven, God. That we have this hope that we cling to, and it's through that hope of eternal life with you that we find joy here and now. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope this message was helpful to you today, and we welcome you to join us live in person or online every Sunday. If you're interested in accessing more on-demand content, please visit sgatechurch.org.